Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Hi, welcome to the latest episode of Exploring Mormon Thought. Today we are starting a new book, and it's the long-awaited. I've had actually a lot of listeners keep asking me if we're going to do this one next, and we were, but then you know we had volumes four and five I didn't know about yet, so we did those. But this one is called Fire on the Horizon, a meditation on the endowment and love of atonement. So this book is a little bit different than the other books in the series. It's First off, it's got kind of a different cover, but it's also... Basically, it's two papers, almost, broken up into chapters, but they're nice, short, and sweet. Most are five to ten pages maximum. I think there's a couple in there that are like 15 pages, but that's about it. But the idea behind it is just to, at least from the reviews I'm reading, it's one of the more accessible to the layperson volumes that you've written or, or books that you've written. So I wanted to kind of introduce the book first off, and then we'll cover the first chapter today, which... Like I said, it's only like five pages, so also listeners, we're trying sort of a new format where we, we're going to try shorter episodes for this book just because A, the chapters allow to do that because they're shorter, and just because. So first off, in the intro, you talk about the idea behind the title of the book, Fire on the Horizon. So if you could just go over what that means and why you chose it for the title of this book. So Fire on the Horizon is something that you just notice kind of at the periphery of your attention. Nevertheless, it's something that has to be paid attention to because of what it portends. It's not paid attention to. It can get way out of line. But it also defines the horizon. There's something significant about the scope of how far we can see given where we stand. And so this is a work that is meant to spur meditation, to motivate people to think carefully and deeply about, you know, what we're addressing. The goal is that they have aha moments, their own breakthroughs, not basically from what I've said, but because we've moved the horizon, they're now seeing things that otherwise weren't possible to see. And so what I'm doing is calling attention to things that they may have missed that are the most foundational, most basic realities in the revealed gospel, things that we rarely pay attention to because they're just at the periphery of our vision. But we must pay attention to them because of the power of what we're dealing with. The power, not merely, and and these are not merely concepts. These are more experienced lived reality because we're talking more about the nature of ritual and actually acting to do actions that are not merely symbolic but performative so that we're involving ourselves in the sacred drama, if you will, in a real way to enact out And usually what we're acting out is to imitate Jesus Christ in his experience. All right. And then also in the intro, you talk a little bit about, well, I guess referring back to the title. So it's a a meditation on the endowment. So you're talking about the temple and in the book, obviously you don't go into like specific details. We keep the the sacred sacred, but you kind of talk about the, the concepts. But in the intro, you, I don't know, I think a lot of people can probably relate to what you say here that you spent many years just bored out of your mind going through the endowment because, I mean, I've experienced this too. If 
If you're just going to just view it on the surface level, it's, it's super repetitive and you're just like, okay, I mean, I, I get it. Why do we have to keep doing this kind of thing? So I'm going to kind of talk a little bit about your experience with the endowment in general that spurred on kind of this meditation or further yeah, d- deeper thoughts. I mean, for a lot of us, it's like going to a movie I've seen 20 times. It doesn't have a very interesting plot. The acting is horrible. And, you know, on the surface, at least, it's just very, very boring. I give an analogy. When I was young, I saw a movie, Casablanca, and I just thought it was the most boring thing I'd ever seen. It was stupid, black and white, and I just didn't get it. But as a mature person, having watched Casablanca again, I saw not only the depth, but the real import of what I had missed. The impossible situation that the movie sets up and the way that people act in light of the demands that are placed upon them. And that's really what we're talking about here as well. It's really seeing with different eyes and experiencing from a different perspective, maybe a more mature perspective. And all throughout what we're discussing, the endowment is always a subtext. It's never the text and never explicit because the endowment is for everyone to experience for their own. My experience is, is not anyone else's experiences and my breakthroughs, insights, aha moments, spiritual insights and manifestations are mine. And I don't want to rob anyone else of the breakthroughs that they will have meditating on this text as a means of, you know, as I said, motivating and giving occasion for their own breakthroughs that maybe they didn't see because what we're going to be doing is we're not going to stay on the surface. We're going to change a perspective and we're going to run toward the horizon to see if we need to take care of this fire that's coming our way. And how do we do that? Because it's such an awesome power, maybe we can't even control it. And maybe it will be vastly different than what we expect, so vastly different that it may, might put our lives at danger. Or maybe it will be nothing at all. Maybe we, we think we see a huge fire and we get there and we realize it's totally under control and not a big deal. In my experience, I went years without getting much out of the endowment. I mean, I had read all kinds of stuff about the endowment. I'd even read Nibley's Egyptian endowment. I'd read a whole bunch of stuff, but I just didn't get it. I mean, I didn't learn how to learn experientially. I didn't learn how the endowment would be an occasion for me to begin having spiritual breakthroughs and seeing things and being surprised moment to moment by what I was getting that I hadn't seen before. And all of that suddenly changed. I mean, really, I I had a change of heart. And the endowment began to be a moment of revelation and a moment not merely of self-assessment, but of insight into myself, seeing things that uh, sometimes I didn't like. Uh, Other times it was insight into something eternal and very often was something that was very deep about me and what I'm all about in my existence, what my purpose in life is. And so the book is a text to dredge and to actually bring to surface the subtext without actually dredging the subtext. And so it's, it's kind of a form of indirect communication like Soren Kierkegaard, the famous Danish philosopher, would have used. So it's that kind of a communication. So with that, like I said, the, it's kind of like one long paper rather than, I guess the book is just divided up more into sections. It's meant to take a kind of a section at a time and then to maybe stop and meditate and let it distill upon one so that it kind of sinks in, and then the, the moment of, wow, how come I hadn't seen that before, begins to take place, that kind of thing. 
All right, and then I'm going to have Jacob walk us through this first section, but just to introduce it, the first part, it's, there's two parts of the book. The first part is going over this overarching idea, which is the atonement and the sacred thou at the center of Joseph Smith's revelations. Go ahead, Jacob, and introduce the actual first chapter, and on we go. So in this first chapter, you're talking about the invitation that calls to us. And you start the book by saying it is significant for reasons that I will explain shortly that Joseph Smith did not arrive at his understanding of God and the cosmos based on a theological analysis. This is actually pretty interesting to think about because a lot of people, when they encounter Joseph Smith's teachings, especially as members of the church, they think, well, whatever Joseph Smith spoke, I mean, he was the prophet, you know, everything must be theologically sound and everything has to fit into place exactly. But as you go through in the chapter here, that's not really the way Joseph Smith came about. So go ahead and talk about what that process was and about this invitation that is calling to us. It's important that Joseph Smith isn't a head case. It's important that he's approaching this from an experiential involvement of the entire heart, mind, and strength, what Mormons call the soul. So that Joseph Smith is giving us, he's not coming and saying, I figured this out. He's simply saying, this is what I experienced. This is what I saw and heard. This was the revelation I received. And in some sense, Joseph Smith would say he's not responsible for what he delivered to us. God is. And he's merely a conduit. But I think we can see in a very real way, it's quintessential Joseph Smith through whom God is working. And so it's vitally important. Joseph Smith was not a theologian. He didn't have the training. He didn't have the temperament to be a theologian or a philosopher. He's not a careful thinker. He's throwing out these massively innovative and creative ways of approaching matters that are so different from the way that they had always been done in the tradition that he upends the tradition in no time at all. A lot of people say, you know, the Book of Mormon is just kind of standard Christianity. And I'm looking at him going, really, we're in standard Christianity. You do, you get a book like the Book of Mormon that is essentially a brand new revelation reorienting the entire world and, and our relation to it. Because the message of the Book of Mormon is God is not active only in and through and after Christ. This message is a unified message for all time and all places. And God is always active in all countries, giving revelation. And it appears that the Book of Mormon is darn near universalistic in its teaching that all people are, of all nations, are receiving revelation, and that God is working with them and always has been until they turn their backs on him. And so, as Joseph Smith goes through his career, he was never afraid to innovate and, and even, you know, kind of change the basis of the story. I mean, when we get, for instance, the vision of the three degrees of glory, I think it knocked both Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon on their proverbial petards to realize the kind of new knowledge they were receiving. It was, it reoriented everything. Later on, when he receives revelations about the United Order, you may be going back to the earliest Christianity, at least in their view, that's how they viewed it, but it was a Christianity that hadn't existed for so long, nobody recognized it as such. When we get to the ordinances that he basically institutes, they're very old, but they're put in an entirely new perspective, and he reorients everything from marriage, family, and familial relationships, and what the purpose of the universe is, and then he then he goes on and gives it a prologue so that, you know, things don't begin here. We're not in the first act of our existence here, as most 
all Christians teach. And so, I mean, this is a, it's just such a mind-blowing reorientation. And Joseph Smith is just experientially delivering this. It's not like he's thought all of this through systematically in the least. He's just delivering stunning new point of view, new revelation, new approach, one after another throughout his entire prophetic career. And so it's important that we see Joseph Smith in the vein of not merely a Hebrew prophet, because the Hebrew prophets were really social justice critics, in a sense. But they were also weirdos. I mean, they're having visions and they're being rejected by their societies in which they live because they just don't fit in, just like Joseph Smith, I would submit. But there are people who have spiritual vision. They have a vision of insight into matters that are not mundane. And they have experiences that other people are just wondering if they actually could ever experience that for themselves. And so when we begin with Joseph Smith, that's the kind of iconoclast. And an iconoclast means a person who just undoes everything. That's the kind of iconoclast that we're dealing with. And you give a good metaphor in the book. Again, instead of arriving at his conclusions by logically sitting down and thinking them out, you say that his religious vision was more like sparks flying from a flint wheel than a seamless fabric of postulates and premises. However, these sparks did not crane off the wheel at random. Rather, they flashed in a common direction and in interesting patterns. His insights are like embers of thought deep in the heart seeking to catch fire, like fuel for creative contemplation. And I think that when we begin to view it in that light, things make a lot more sense, especially, you know, different accounts of the first vision or a lot of people think that, hey, when Joseph Smith received one of his revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants, you know, he just penned it down and that was it. There was no editing, there was no changes or anything like that made. The reality is actually quite different. Uh, like you said, Joseph didn't hesitate to make changes when he felt like he came to a better understanding or after he had sat and contemplated what had happened to him or, or what his experience was and came to new insights. He was revolutionary, and revolutionary in the sense that he didn't mind upending what he had just established as a new way of seeing things either. He was revolutionary throughout his entire life. And it's this kind of creativity, this kind of openness to be willing to walk away from, yeah, I know I told you X, Y, and Z, but now I'm telling you A, B, C, D, Y, and F too. So the amazing prophetic career and mission of Joseph Smith has to be seen in the light of this kind of amazingly upending revolutionary figure who is just he's not putting wine into old bottles or in old skins and there's no way to go back to what's old his restoration may be restoring old things but man he's blowing old things apart as well you go on to talk about how the central or controlling metaphor that burns at the core of joseph smith's vision is this indwelling unity and we've discussed it before we've described it but if you go again over briefly what this indwelling unity is and why that's so significant. Yeah, the core of Joseph Smith's vision, and, and it runs through everything he did throughout his career, is this realization that the greatest value, the greatest thing that we know, is the loving, interpenetrating unity and relationship of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost in the Godhead. It is so profound that this kind of love is the kind of love that Every relationship would find its fulfillment in this kind of unity. It's the kind of unity where individuality is heightened rather than obliterated. It's the kind of unity where love is truly expressed. It's the kind of unity that is the fulfillment of human relationships. It's the kind of unity that beings of the kind of nature that we are find their fulfillment 
indwelling in this unity. And when I say indwelling, let me express that. The nature is expressed well in the Gospel of John, and John uses two Greek words to magnify the kind of unity he's talking about there, hen and en. Hen is, of course, Greek for one, and en is in. So we get en, one, and hen, in. What we're talking about is the most valuable thing, the most valuable reality that human beings can realize in our existence. This kind of love that is so majestic, that is so fulfilling and inviting, that it is the summation of all existence. We just can't think of anything more valuable or fulfilling for beings like us. And so we see the relationship that they have And I think the stunning reality is that Joseph Smith is teaching us, I think the Gospel of John teaches this well as as well, and the, the epistles of John. But the reality that he highlighted through everything he did is that we have been invited to participate, not merely in this relationship, but in the very mode of indwelling that they have with one another. We are invited to become divine in one another because we divinize one another. The relationship is so divine that anyone who participates in it is a god and goddess made fully divine in the relationship. And it is the fulfillment of our nature to realize everything that we have and are to be in this relationship. And so he's focusing on the greatest possible reality. But this is not a static idea. It's not realizing some idea in a platonic sense, because love is an active verb. It is living our lives in such a way that we are always giving and receiving. We are always actively participating in relationships with other people. The entire law of love that Christ taught is aimed at realizing this kind of relationship. And so everything that is taught in the gospel centers on the goal. And the goal is to be united in one as the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are united as one. Excellent. And on that note... You also discuss a little bit more about you know the goal of creating Zion, how Zion really is all of humanity having that type of relationship as well, and then how everything else, you know, temperaturals, ordinances for the dead, everything really points to this type of a relationship. Yeah, so Zion is the economy and the nature of social relationship that we have with one another that teaches us how to love one another so that we are fit to be in the relationship of unity that we seek. Zion just is reflecting on earth the kind of relationship that the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost have in heaven. Zion is the economic order where no one is left behind, where there are no poor because a person who has means can't stand the thought that there is somebody who is without. What it means is that every single member, every single person who's ever existed, is a member of the family. So with my children, you are my children, you know how this works, I went to work. I worked hard so that I could clothe you, feed you, and protect you, and make sure that you had everything you needed. You didn't earn it, you didn't have to pay for it. I didn't ask for anything in return. I did it out of sheer love because that's what fathers do. It's what I did because I loved you so much. And this is no small gift to give of one's life spent and, and a lot of guys, I think, see themselves, they, they just assume that their families are going to understand, you guys are fathers now, so you understand what I'm talking about. This reality of being able to give one's life in service of others by working to support and sustain. So it's this role that we undertake 
in Zion for everyone, not just members of our family. It's not merely the case that if you have needs, I provide them. Everyone is considered my brother or sister. You know, we call each other brother and sister, but we really don't treat each other like we're in the same family because we make kinds of economic distinctions that don't exist in a family. And so that's the kind of relationship. Zion, you know, is the pure in heart, but it's also where all are joined in one in a unity of heart and having common everything economically so that there will be no poor. The temple rituals are, we'll get into this later, but they are in essence teaching us to replicate the experience of Jesus Christ. For example, if we're baptized, we go into the water as if though we're going into the grave, and when we come out of the water, we resurrect with him. And we are born again with Christ when we come forth out of the waters of baptism. And the entire temple endowment is that way in Christianity in the first centuries. Before baptism, there was this complex of ordinances where they had, after a year of being a Christian, they kind of had a new initiation where they would go into the antechamber of the baptismal. And then by baptismal, I mean, you've seen this when you went to Europe, for instance, in Florence when you were there. They had a baptistry that was independent of the Duomo that was there, the cathedral. And so they would go into the baptistry, and as they entered the baptistry, they would take off their clothes and and enter naked. I'm sure they wore something, but they would enter naked to replicate the the existence of Adam and Eve, and they would be washed and anointed. And the anointing was not a, you know, it was an anointing of, for instance, anointing the eyes that you may see, anointing the nose that you can smell the sweet savor of the Lord, anoint your lips that you may always speak the truth, uh, anoint your breast that you may always dwell in love. So this was a group of ordinances, and so they would wash and anoint, then they would go into the font, be baptized, come forward, and then they would come out and put on a robe or a garment, and that would they called it putting on Christ. And so one was literally being Christified, being made over in the image of Christ through these ordinances. The temple ordinances, which I'm not going to go into detail, do the very same kind of a thing. We become fully deified because we replicate symbolically and ritually the experiences of Jesus Christ to be made over in his own image. The ordinances for the dead are a recognition of the universality of the scope of the human family that we must seek to save in unity with us. So that as C.S. Lewis said, if there's just one person who isn't saved, we are blessed because of that. We are not fully realizing the joy that we could have had if just one person is left. Plural marriage actually was aimed at creating this kind of family relationship. So if one reads DNC 132 carefully, the purpose of the plural marriage revelation begins with a man being willing to take a woman whose husband is not providing for her in the gospel. And he can already be married, but he's accepting her as a person that he takes care of in the family. And it is actually a familiar relationship. What it was actually, it was a ceiling. And at least I believe for Joseph Smith was asexual. I don't believe that he had sexual relationships with the women that he married who were already married to other men. But it was primarily to provide for them as provided in DNC 132. I could go on about plural marriage. I'm not going to. There's a lot more to be said about that. But the whole point is at least two dimensions. One is to replicate in our lives here and now the kind of divine love for other people that the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost have. 
and to learn through these experiences how to have that kind of love and to grow to have the capacity to have that kind of love. And the second is to learn to replicate the experience of Christ to be fully deified in this relationship. And we do that through the ordinances and rituals. And according to Joseph Smith, there just isn't any other way to learn what has to be taught and learned in that particular way. And so the book is to spur us to begin to fully experience the deification that comes from the stunning reality that we have been invited even now to be in this relationship and to reflect the love of this relationship in every human relationship that we have. All right. And like you said, there's a bit more about floral marriage later on in the book, and we can discuss that more in depth. But I think that's a really good start to the book that concludes the first chapter and sets us up for for the next chapter, which will be an ethic of religious discourse, and we'll be returning to the I-Thou relationship. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.